it was almost like like that game musical chairs where you know the music stops and there was nowhere for me to sit. I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. Scott Harrison is on the show this week. He's the founder of Charity Water and he has kind of indirectly had a huge impact on my life. Scott is a perfect example of someone who has done a 180 with their life direction and trajectory. He used to be a nightclub promoter, and he was kind of living the fancy life, and he decided to make a huge shift. He's now generated hundreds of millions of dollars for Charity Water, his charity, Um, which brings clean drinking water to a variety of different places across the globe. Now, I'm pulling this one out of the archives. We actually aired this about three years ago. Many of you probably haven't caught it. And if you have, you might even want a, a refresher. This time of year, as we enter into the holidays, a lot of times we're starting to reflect on the new year ahead and what we want to be doing and what it's going to take for us to get to where we want to be. So I thought this would be the perfect episode to resurface because it's been one of the most impactful and one of my absolute favorite episodes and conversations. And I feel like it is just flooded with not only inspiration and motivation, but but tactical tips. If you are looking to make a pretty big change, how you can go about that? What are the very first things you can do? Scott shares his insight. He has transformed his entire life. And um, it's, it's pretty refreshing to hear from someone who has done just that. We tackle the most taboo topics on the Why Not Now show. Oftentimes, you're hearing guests share things they've never shared before. In the spirit of things we don't typically talk about, you should know that the Why Not Now show is supported by Poopery, the original before-you-go toilet spray. It's magic. My friends at Poopery have literally taken the smell out of you-know-what. This pure blend of essential oils stops bathroom odor before it begins. Visit Poopery.com and Why Not Now listeners get 20% off with code Why Not Now. That's all one word. And you can hear the story about Poopery in our interview with founder Susie Batiste. That's Why Not Now, episode 28. Poopery is also available at Bed Bath & Beyond. 
Harrison, welcome to the show. I am excited to have you on. I'm excited to talk with you. <laughs> well, you know, it's it was fun this morning as I was looking through some photos from my trip to Ethiopia with your team and and just reminiscing and and kind of restudying your story and it truly is a case of a person who has been a professional why notter. So let's dive right in. Let's go back to kind of that moment when you had to ask yourself, why not now? You wanted to make this pretty big change. And what caused you to ask yourself that? But also let's talk through the steps of of what you did, the very first step. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess to get to that, I need to back up a little bit. So I grew up um, in a very conservative Christian home. My mom had become very ill when I was four years old. So she was a, she was an invalid. And I grew up as an only child, um, really you know, helping to take care of mom, playing by all the rules, uh, playing piano in the church, just a really good kid, but also a, a slightly traumatic childhood that was just... Um, uh, my mom's illness was so bizarre and, and so traumatic. So at 18 years old, I kind of act out this classic rebellion story. I moved to New York City. I join a band. I start drinking and smoking and doing drugs and chasing girls. And I become a nightclub promoter. So I, I figured if you were going to rebel, you should rebel in style. And I couldn't believe that there was this job where you could actually get paid to drink for free. And from 18 to 28, the the next decade was just a hedonistic, selfish, sycophantic time for me, um, selling $500 bottles of champagne to, you know, bankers and, um, you know, just, just really living uh, an excessive, destructive life, uh, at least one that uh, had compromised the the spirituality and the morality of of my past. And I got to a point at 28 years old where I was on a vacation in South America. We'd gone to Punta del Este in Uruguay, and I was with uh, the beautiful people. And and there was this amazing compound we were staying at, and there were uh, there was a staff waiting on us, and there were horses in the backyard, and we'd spent a thousand dollars blowing up fireworks and magnums of Dom Perignon, and you know, you can kind of imagine all of the things that that might say to someone, you know, you've arrived, you should be happy, mm-hmm. and I realized uh, it was almost like. Uh, like like that game musical chairs, where you know the music stops and there was nowhere for me to sit, and in in some ways it was just this cathartic moment where I realized that there would never be enough. Um, I I'd been looking you know for happiness for satisfaction in all the wrong places, and there'd never be enough parties, there'd never be enough girls, or someone would always have a nicer watch or a nicer car uh, or a nicer apartment, and if I continued. Uh, in this path of nightlife, the legacy I was leaving was just simply getting people drunk, um, getting them wasted for for a living. And maybe I'd get a million or two million or five million people drunk over the course of my life. But um, I think I wanted my life to stand for something a little different. So, you know, I, I have a, a pretty... Um, faith is really an important part of my story and my journey. So I, I begin kind of trying to find my way back to a very lost Christian faith, a very lost morality. And I think opting back into that as an adult um, was really powerful for me. So I had come across this this verse that said, true religion is to look after widows and orphans 
in their distress and to keep from being uh, polluted by the world. Well, I, I felt like I was over two. I had done nothing for the poor in 10 years. And not only was I uh, one of the most polluted people I knew, I actually polluted others with my life and, and with my parties. So, uh, and I come back to New York. I'm kind of I'm I'm struggling with what next. You know, I didn't want to throw parties in nightclubs anymore, and uh, I don't know. It was kind of a wrestling of the soul, and and it wasn't. Um, you know, it, it took me about six months from that vacation to find a way out. And there was a moment where I uh, rented this uh, cobalt blue Ford Mustang from Newark Airport. Uh, I think it was an unlimited rental. I had no idea where I was going, and I just started driving north. And I grabbed the Bible, I grabbed the bottle of Dewar's, uh, and just started heading up through Connecticut and Vermont, You know, really trying to pray, trying to figure out what the opposite of my life might look like, how I might be able to make a, a radical change and, and kind of find my way back home to the things I thought was important. So I, I wind up in, you know, and this is maybe the how, I wind up in Moosehead Lake in Maine. I mean, we're talking in the middle of the state. Uh, I'm at an internet cafe in Greenville that is a dial-up internet cafe. And I start dial up. I mean, I, I, I won't make the sounds cause it's painful, <laughs> but everybody, everybody has horrible memories of that sound. Um, and, uh, I, I begin to apply to volunteer, uh, for humanitarian organizations. So, you know, save the children or UNICEF or the Peace Corps, you know, these organizations that, that one might've heard of. And it was a really simple idea. I would give one of the 10 years that I had selfishly wasted, and in service to the poor, I would try to clean up my life and clean up my act and and see where that took me. And one of the frustrating things was no one would take me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm denied by all these organizations because, of course, they are very serious, credible people. And I am something they've never even heard of before, which is a nightclub promoter. And it's, it's not a necessarily transferable skill from getting a thousand people inside a club past the velvet rope to you know, serious humanitarian work in South Sudan. So I'm, I'm really frustrated because my, my heart is now wanting to serve. Uh, I've, I've literally put miles between my destructive kind of lifestyle in New York. Um, I'm in nature in Maine and no one will take me. So I'm, I'm very fortunate. One organization finally writes me back and, and says, if I was willing to pay them $500 a month and I was willing to go live in post-war Liberia, now this is a country I'd never even heard of in West Africa, um, that I could volunteer. And that's really where everything started for me. I, I dusted off a journalism degree that I'd gotten at NYU and never used and said to this organization, look, I actually probably can be of service to you because I have 15,000 people on my club list. I've been getting people drunk for 15 years or for, for 10 years. What if, um, what if I were to tell them a new story? What if I was able to highlight the amazing humanitarian work that I'm sure you're going to be doing in Liberia? And it happened very quickly after that. Uh, I sold almost everything I owned. I remember putting up over a thousand DVDs in a lot on eBay. <laughs> I just liquidated my life uh, and joined this amazing hospital ship, a humanitarian mission uh, in post-war Liberia at 28 years old. 
Wow. And and you took your doors and your Bible and you hit the road. I, I just think that that's, it's such a visual. And when you say you, you liquidated your life and some of those moments, you needed some money. Well, did you need money? Did you? I did need, I did need money. I mean, night, nightclub promoters make great money, but we spend everything we own. I mean, okay. it's a, um, and, and, and you're, you know, you're flying on other people's private planes and, you know, we, we were never the ones paying the, the dinner bill, right? It's, it's kind of a, yeah. a system of everybody else's money. So, you know, I, I did, I did need the money to, to go and serve. And, um, while, you know, I was doing great, we weren't exactly saving up. (laughs) Sure. Sure. And I think that that's a common thing with when people are facing that, why not now question. It's, it's so easy to have financials be our excuse and a, a legitimate excuse, but getting creative, how to work through them, selling things on eBay. I guess it comes down to, would you say how bad do you want it? What do you think? I, I think so, or how you know how important security and money really is. Um, you know, I think. Look, I was also fortunate. You know, I was born in a very middle class family. You know, my parents don't make much money, but also I knew I was always going to have a roof over my head, mm-hmm. right? So if this didn't work out, right, I could always go sleep in the basement <laughs> or you know in the spare room at my parents. So, um, and I know a lot of people don't have that that luxury now. You know, it did work out for me. So I, I wound up paying for myself for a while. And then I actually wound up raising support from other friends. So you know, this humanitarian mission, it's a really interesting business model. The, the way that they help subsidize the programs is they turn their volunteers into fundraisers. So there were 350 people, doctors, surgeons, nurses, uh, support staff on this giant hospital ship. And everybody was raising about $500 a month uh, for, for crew fees. Some people paying it themselves, some raising it for others. So it was it was partly my money. And then I actually went to guys that were buying bottles and said, hey, do you want to help support me for a month? Um, so it was, yeah, there was, there was a little bit of humility. But, it, but also really leveraging and using that network that you had built. I mean, taking it to your advantage with the email list you mentioned. And, and I've heard you tell your story a few times. And by the way, it's never boring. And I always hear more to it every time and get different things out of it, as I'm sure everyone else does. But you've... You've often said, you know, I was the worst person I knew and I've been there before and and just have felt like I've gotten so off track where the outside doesn't match the inside, don't even really like myself, wouldn't hang out with myself. And I'm sure there are other people who feel the same right this moment and they want to change and why not now? What what advice would you give to someone as far as their very first step in headed into a new direction? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I mean, uh, first of all, one of the funny things is no one ever believes me when I say that. And then including my wife, you know, because she didn't know me back then. (laughs) And, you know, she just absolutely has thought that this is hyperbole over the years, me saying this. And every once in a while, you know, she will stumble upon a photo of me cracked out at noon um, or, or some email that I wrote, you know, that has 17 expletives, you know, in a single paragraph where I'm just berating dating someone. And, uh, and, and then it says, wow, you really were a, you know, <laughs> I have, I imagine that just feels so odd to her knowing, and, and I didn't know you then, and I don't know you super well, but I definitely can't imagine, but I guess it goes to show how much a person can change. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't hyperbole. I mean, uh, my best friend, you know, was saying, you know, used to, we were just talking about it. We're making this kind of 10 year anniversary video with a look back at, at you know, just some of the 
the cool things that have happened over the last 10 years. And he said, you know, you used to be so angry. <laughs> the guy would come to deliver, you know, food with seamless web or so. And, um, you would yell at the guy for not having a pen to sign the receipt. You'd slam the door in his face, you know? <laughs> so I, I mean, I don't even remember some of this. So what, what, what would the advice be? I mean, for me, it was, it was very much a kind of deep, soulful uh, reconnection to faith. You know, if, uh, and I know people listening would have many different faith stories and, and I'm sure probably the majority, none at all. Um, I think for me, it's about, uh, you know, out of that context, it's about not being selfish. I mean, my entire life was designed to make me happy and that doesn't make you happy when all you're trying to do is serve yourself. Uh, there's actually almost an entrapment in that. You know, I found that, uh, you know, I kind of tried to position God first and then others, you know, second, right? Could I, what would my relationship with, with God be? And then what could it look like to the poor? And I found a real freedom in escaping kind of that selfish trap and escaping. And the more time I spent thinking about others, the more I wanted to help others and almost the, the more free I became. So I think sometimes in relationships, you know, you, you'll see a husband and a wife or a, you know, two people that aren't married and it's all about them, you know, what they can get out of the relationship. And the, the minute it's not convenient, they can just walk. And, you know, I, I think the, uh, uh, maybe a more beautiful picture of marriage is two people that are laying down their life for each other, um, that you are really waking up every day, trying to meet the needs of your partner, um, you know, or of others. So uh, for me, just, just changing that positional approach, I mean, it's 180 degree opposite. Um, and then you find yourself, uh, you find yourself much happier. You find yourself kind of free. That's that's a great and and I think coming down to that selfishness just to be aware and and do that gut check. So if you're wanting to do this 180 like Scott Harrison did, it might be a good place to start. And and I guess it's you know, our mutual friend Tony Shea has always said most people misdiagnose what will make them happy, and you're chasing something else because you think it will, um, which is very common. So when I got back from Ethiopia with you, your team, I had this epiphany and I wrote a piece about it. And basically the gist was kind of once you realize what enough looks like, you become rich. And I know that's been said before, but that was definitely how I felt. I felt like I, I was witnessing something that I had never even known existed in terms of the environment that we were in. And, and not only grateful, but I just, it took me a while to adjust from, from Tigray, Ethiopia, and I, I was on a business trip, and I actually had to get go to um, to Europe and London, and it was just, and then back to Vegas, and it was this kind of culture shock to head back into Vegas. And you've hosted a lot of people to third world countries. What's the most common takeaway you hear from people who have been exposed to such a different environment? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I've taken about 350 people now personally, wow. uh, you know, to, to, to our projects around the world. I've been to Ethiopia 27 times mm -hmm. now since, since starting the organization. And, you know, I, I've taken kids as young as five, um, and people that are, that are much older, um, you know, in their seventies, I think, um, uh, you know, for me, let, let me just start organizationally. I think it's it's hard sometimes listening to a guy like me up on stage, you know, telling stories about people in Africa without clean water, and you know, talking about our local partners, and and it's just 
it's hard to imagine. I mean, I'm, you know, if anyone's seen my presentation, I'll show 150 photos and videos and I'm trying to bring this to life, but I can only do so much when you're there. Uh, you smell it, you see it, you walk up and down mountains in hundred degree heat. You know, w- one of the things that everybody does on a charity water trip is we give them 40 pounds of water and we just ask them to carry it for a half hour. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people pass out. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they, they, they absolutely cannot do it. Um, and there are 13 year old girls that are walking five hours a day. Uh, so I think there's just something so visceral about the experience and asking questions yourself. I'm sure on your trip, you know, I, I, you, if you were with me, I wouldn't be doing the one, I wouldn't be speaking. I would just set you up with a translator to ask questions directly of the women, directly of our local partners, those drillers who are out there every day trying to provide clean water for their own people. And, you know, I think it's powerful. One, one of the things that a lot of people ask um, when, they're, when they're in Ethiopia or Nepal or wherever they go with us is, why don't you move, right? I mean, that's that comment, hey, if the water is so bad, if you're walking five hours to a nasty swamp, why don't you just move? And I, I love hearing them uh, ask that question because the answer always comes back, where would you like us to move? And, and no one really knows how to answer that, you know, because this isn't, it's not like, you know, you sell your house and, and right. move from Chicago to, you know, the suburbs or, you know, from New York to LA. You know, this is, uh, so many of these communities where we're working are living in less than a dollar a day. And and this is the the land that their their family has had for years. It's where their grandparents lived and where their great-grandparents lived. And they're, they're actually farming off the land. They're eating off the land. So the thought of moving to a slum, you know, in, in Addis Ababa or, or, uh, you know, to a, to a sub city, uh, it's just so foreign to them. So it's, it's always just wonderful watching those interactions that are just so human and so, uh, so opening for people. So I think, look, people can't believe how bad it really is mm-hmm. when you watch children drinking water that is brown and viscous and moving, um, water with frogs and fish in it, uh, with donkey poop floating nearby. Um, it, 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 I mean, some people have a gag reflex, Mm -hmm. you know, it is shocking that humans today are facing the kind of suffering around water that, that exists. And, uh, for so many people, water isn't something we even think about. You know, we take long showers. It's just always there. Most people listen to this. If they really thought about it, haven't been thirsty in years. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we run marathons and there are people holding out cups and water every, you know, every 50 yards. Uh, it's just so foreign to us to experience water shortage, to, to walk for water, to drink dirty water, to hear about a woman telling you that she's terrified of being killed by crocodiles as she gets water from the river because one of her friends was snatched years ago and she thinks that crocodile is still out there. It's hard to believe. It's really hard. That's that's one of the reasons why I asked that question is because it's, you know, it the solution is there. I've witnessed it and you, you have this challenge and this huge problem that uh, we actually know how how to solve and that's what you are doing. Um, Yet it's hard for people to wrap their minds around. I'll never forget 
some young girls uh, when I was over there, they they walked up to me and they were a little scared of me. I don't know if they've even seen anyone with such light colored skin before. And they would kind of come up and almost touch me as if they weren't sure what would happen. And they pointed to my phone and I started taking photos of them just on my iPhone. And then I thought, I'm going to flip this around and do a selfie with them. Well, I flipped that camera around and here we are all, you know, gathered together, probably six or seven of us within the frame. And they saw their own reflection. And then they were grabbing at my phone. And I was kind of thinking, hey, now, (laughs) I need my phone. And they were just grabbing at it because we weren't really able to communicate verbally. And I realized this was the first time they ever saw their own reflection, ever. And that to me was a one of the biggest moments of my life of realizing, wow, I am in this other world worrying about things that that are just so different and and they have never even seen what they look like and think of how obsessed our culture is with what we look like. And it was it was hard to even describe. So it's it's I feel like the more, you know, we can, your storytelling with Charity Water is amazing. You guys do such a good job. Um, and and I think that's one reason why you've just been so successful is you do humanize those stories and bring them to life. But it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, but how do you, given all of this and everything you do, the places you travel, things you see, how do you keep your own mind healthy? You mentioned faith. So. Yeah, I, I guess I just have a, I, I'm an optimist. I think that really helps. So I'm, I'm always looking for the hope and the opportunity. Um, if, if I'm in a village, you know, knowing, wa- watching this kind of suffering, I know that we're going to be able to bring a solution. I know that, you know, 300 people's lives a year or two uh, on will be changed and that, that there will be an end to that suffering. I think by the very nature of our work, you know, you're, you're, you, there are these two extremes. There are these terrible stories. I mean, I lived in a village, Amy, where a 13-year-old girl hung herself after she spilled her water because she didn't want to go walk for water anymore. They found her, you know, her body swinging from a tree in the village with a clay pot in, in shards nearby um, because she carelessly slipped. Uh, you know, there, there are stories of such unspeakable agony and tragedy. Mm-hmm. And then we get to spend time with women who have clean water who tell us that they feel beautiful for the first time in their life because they have enough water now to wash their face and wash their clothes and and keep their families clean and their homes clean. So, you know, they're really these two extremes, these these polarizing extremes. Um, I, I think I really try to focus on the progress that is being made. And, you know, while we're not shying away from telling hard stories that are true, we really focus more on the opportunity, inviting people to to be a part of the solution, you know, to kind of Mm -hmm. shake off the apathy that is so easy uh, to fall into. You know, when I when I tell people that 663 million people around the planet don't have clean water, minds just shut down. He will say, well, <laughs> I don't know what 663 million of anything even looks like and how could I ever contribute to a problem that big? So uh, I think we really try to focus on one woman, one family, one village, one region, one state. Um, and 10 years later, you know, we've gotten over 6 million people clean water taking that approach. Um, and over a million people around the world have actually broken 
uh, away from that apathy. Instead of throwing their hands up in the air, you know, they've done something. They've given money. They've donated a birthday. They've volunteered. Um, they've said, you know, this isn't okay on my watch. It's not okay for people to walk eight hours for dirty water. It's not okay for kids to hang themselves um, because they don't want to go back to some disgusting water hole. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing the juxtaposition between the communities or the villages that did have the clean water and being able to actually be there with the rig that has its GPS and being able to kind of see this amazing thing happen as all of the people stand around and watch. And then the other, you know, side of it where they don't. And the ones that did, it, the smiles, the energy, the health was so black and white as far as being able to see that difference. It was, it was fascinating. All that is, is water, you know, that brings so much health and you're bringing those numbers down. I remember when it was 800 or million 750 people, yeah. million. Yeah. You're right. That's so uh, encouraging to know, especially as someone who's done birthday campaigns and things like that. So yeah, and it's more than just the money that you've raised. It's really the awareness. Um, you know, the, the UN has just kind of revamped its Millennium Development Goals, and water now has a standalone goal. You know, the UN has come out and said, no one should be drinking dirty water, no one should be without a toilet, um, and it's kind of put a stake in the ground 15 years out. It's incredibly ambitious, but there's so much more awareness. So many more people are talking about this issue today because water, you know, water is life. It mm-hmm. touches so many things. It impacts education. It impacts health. It gives time back to women that they can then turn into income as they start small businesses. Water is just this very, very powerful transformative agent that uh, that can lift people out of extreme poverty, that can eliminate this suffering. And it's and as you said, we know how to do it. It's not like a cure for uh, cancer that that may you know exist in a lab or, or a test tube ten years in the future. There's not a single person on earth that needs to drink dirty water. Now, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. You can't always dig wells. You can't always build rainwater systems. You can't always uh, build filtration systems. But uh, if you're solution agnostic, uh, we know how to bring clean water to every single person on Earth. A lot of different things work in a lot of different contexts. Yeah, well, and you you have such a strong passion and your you can kind of feel the competitiveness in terms of not just against any entity, but just against this mission. And, and you're back real quick to, to how you keep your mind healthy. Are there any tangible things that you do? Well, I, I have a, I have a family now. So I have a two-year-old at home uh, and I have a, another one on the way. I have a girl coming in, um, I guess, about six weeks now. So, Congratulations. You know, I'm, I mean, I get to spend a lot of time with family, uh, which is, uh, I, you know, I love it. I mean, my, you know, <laughs> anytime I might ever get too big for my britches, you know, my wife is, uh, <laughs> gives me a great dose of humility. <laughs> so, you know, I can, I can come back from a conference, you know, speaking in front of 15,000 people and, you know, I'll be taking out the trash and doing diapers and, um, <laughs> you know, basically <laughs> working Keeping for her real. for the next three days. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, I think, you know, I have a prayer life, you know, I, I definitely have a kind of, you know, uh, my versions of, of spiritual disciplines and, and that helps. And, you know, I really, I think priorities, you know, I want to, I, I really want to, you know, live a life of integrity first. I want to be a great husband. I want to be a great dad. I want to be a great friend. I kind of put work fifth. Um, you know, I, 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 I want to crush it. At, at Charity Water, and I want to help as many people as possible and never compromise our values. But uh, I really spend more time, I think, uh, working on character, thinking about, you know, thinking about my character than, um, than maybe 
you know, the impact of the organization. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Quick favor before we dive in. If you are digging this podcast, please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It just takes a moment and it means a ton to us. Also, after recording more than 100 episodes, I've created a bit of a cheat sheet on the top five things I've learned from renegades and how they get from idea to action, from dreaming to doing. I will email you the downloadable PDF when you subscribe to my newsletter. Just head to amyjomartin.com and click on connect with me. I, w- I have so many questions for you, but I know I want to keep uh, on our time here. The the other side of the why not now is looking at the future and and kind of, you know, you're, you're getting ready to celebrate the 10th anniversary and congratulations on that of Charity Water, but also some huge personal um, developments happening with your family growing. Is there something specifically that you've been thinking about doing that, it's time or it will be time soon to get your why not now on. Yeah, I've been threatening to write a book for about six years. So I finally have put it in motion and you know, finally uh, started working with an agent and interviewing people who could, who could write it with me and stop making excuses that I'm too busy, which was the excuse for six, uh, about six years. So what made you pull the trigger? What, what allowed you to get rid of that excuse? Was there a moment or was there something that happened? You know, I'll be really honest. Uh, a, a friend of mine who I really trust, who who runs um, the CAA Foundation, said, um, "You should tell your story before someone else does, and you might not like it." <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that was the catalyst, huh? To own your voice. So that's a good one. <laughs> that said, Amy, that was like three years ago. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, it, I think it got me thinking a little more. Now, I, I think really it's around this 10-year mark. You know, for so many years, I kept saying, you know, we're in a doing stage and we haven't done enough. I haven't, I haven't accomplished enough to think that there's much worth writing about. Um, I think there's something about showing up for a decade, uh, you know, helping 6 million people out of 600 million, where now maybe you know, there's a time for a little more reflectiveness and I want to share what's worked with others. There are so many other great leaders out there. There's so many great causes. There's so many people trying to uh, improve the lives of others, eliminate suffering around the world. And if some of the lessons that we learned at Charity Water, both both stupid stuff we did and mistakes we made, and also, you know, some of the things that, that maybe we even lucked into that just really worked, if that could be helpful for others, um, you know, it, it feels like it's worth uh, slowing down down a little bit to take the time um, to to write. It's it's also you know part of um, strategy and awareness because that that book and that message may be just as impactful, even more scalable than you hopping on a plane and getting in front of X amount of people. So in a way, I mean, obviously there are multiple benefits, but it's 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 very smart in the cause that you that you are wanting to. Uh, tackle and you are tackling. So I, I heard one of your favorite quotes was, if not us, then who? And if not now, then when? Yeah. yeah I think that's, uh, I, I think it's a guy named Hillel, like around the turn of the century, like 2000 years ago. But yeah, I love that idea. My, my new favorite quote that I've been talking about is something uh, a friend actually saw on a storefront and sent me a picture. So, you know, almost one of those things that you would see on Instagram, I guess. But <laughs> it said, uh, do not be afraid of work that has no end, which I think is really profound. 
Yeah. And, and, and there's something about that, right? Even if we solve the water crisis um, and, and we're sitting here 15 or 20 years from now talking and there are 20 or 30 million supporters of Charity Water, I think it would be hard not to focus that compassionate, generous community on another need. You know, while there are still people hungry and going to bed hungry at night or while there's still people without roofs uh, over their head, you know, without shelter. Um, I, I think it would probably be hard for myself and our team to drop the mic and I'll go work at Goldman Sachs or, <laughs> you know, or, or, yes. or go, you know, go start companies and try to make millions of dollars. So I, I really love the sentiment be- behind that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a life of service and kind of knowing that there will never there is no end point. There is no, we did it. We went to the moon. You know, there, there's a, a line in the Bible that says, uh, the poor will always be with you. Um, so it's really about this struggle to, it's a positional way to live your life. I think that, that serves others and benefits others and tries to eliminate as much suffering, um, and, and provide for human flourishing. I just listened to Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy. And he talks a bit about um, being versus doing. And I, I was thinking about, I was reflecting on that and thinking about, you know, a lot of my career and just life has been trying to be something, trying to be XYZ, get to XYZ level. And it really, truly, um, what you just said is a lot more about doing. Because even especially if there's work that has no end, you have to keep doing. There isn't an end game per se. So I love that. I absolutely love that. Speaking of books, what are you reading right now? I'm actually reading a book called The Experience Economy, uh, which I've just started. So I don't know if it's any good, but okay. I'm really I'm really interested in the idea of uh, you know where where is our attention going in the future, and how does an organization like Charity Water communicate? How do we move people uh, to greater empathy? And, you know, five years ago, I, I could make YouTube videos that were three minute long and people would watch them and share them and cry um, and then give. You know, now, you know, uh, you might watch 14 seconds of a YouTube video and in that time you got three Snapchat notifications and, you know, Donald Trump is shouting on some TV in the background. Um, I think it's just getting harder and harder to grab people's attention. So I'm thinking a lot more about experiences. Um, we, we shot our first film in virtual reality last May where we, we took a VR rig to Ethiopia and we documented the six days where a 13-year-old girl named Salam gets clean water for the first time in her life. And you know, this is so interesting to me because people will put on the headset uh, and eight minutes they go to Ethiopia and they experience... Uh, a transformative change in Salam's life, in her family's life, in the community's life. Uh, many people will take this headset off weeping. Uh, and we've seen people, you know, uncontrollably really moved by this this story. And, you know, that's all great. But what I think I love is that their phone was off for eight minutes. <laughs> they did not check Whoa. their phone. I mean, there is mm-hmm. there is an amount of time where people are willing to let me put a movie screen on their face, put headphones on them, and and, you know, absorb content, which we're doing our best to make sure is redemptive content and empathetic content and content that challenges people and gets them to think and moves them to action. So I'm actually kind of piloting this, um, I guess, before reading the book. So maybe I find some validation in this book, but there you go. Uh, we're, we're doing a huge virtual reality takeover of a public space in lower Manhattan. 
um, that has foot track of traffic of over 3,500 people an hour. And we're doing a, uh, an 80 foot, uh, kind of mural and banner. We're setting up these VR kiosks through the middle of the space. We have 900 volunteers helping with this. And we're really just going to stop people and say, um, Hey, try this out. You know, step into someone else's world. Step into a thirteen-year-old girl's life in Ethiopia, and and see how you feel. I'm I'm not sure how it's going to work, but uh, I'm pretty excited about about trying. Well, props to you two for the integration of just the innovation, but also the willingness to pioneer. And you've really changed the game how charities interact with technology and think differently. Your partnership with Google, your um, reinventing the way that fundraising happens online as well as in the physical world. I've been to the charity water balls and it's, it's amazing to see how you flip this kind of on its head. So congratulations on that as well as the the 10-year mark, which is huge. Um, I just have one more question for you, Scott, and but it's just something that's been weighing on my mind that I think might be helpful for. So I, I always, I don't know if it's just my childhood or if, if it's just the, the topic, but sometimes I lean away from talking about faith, um, especially bringing it up in questions. But you've talked, you've talked about how it's a, a big part of your, it was a big part of your childhood. And then you kind of went through this time where you rebelled and, and it's now once again, a big part of your life. Can you s- talk through whether or not your relationship with, with religion and how you practice is different from when you were younger or maybe what that looks like. And the reason I'm asking is because, you know, I I actually have a similar situation and, and I'm sure a lot of people do to where there have been moments where I'm actually seeking more f- faith or religion in my life. And I'm finding that through other vehicles like meditation and just nature. But I'm just, I have a lot of curiosity about what that could look like at a at even higher level. And a lot of people I think are in the same in the same spot. So, you know, I should just preface this, this would come from, you know, a, a Christian type worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, it's so funny you mentioned the word religion because maybe that's one of the main differences between, uh, you know, coming back to, to faith at 28 and, and growing up, you know, in the church uh, with quotes around it. Um, as I reread the teachings of Jesus and his words, I realized actually he was the least religious person. I mean, th- this was a guy who was... Oh, really against the oppressive religious establishment of the time and you know was a true radical and was a true revolutionary and and spent his life challenging people towards greater virtue towards greater integrity you know to love their neighbors uh, to you know turn the other cheek I mean it was a, a you know blessed are the you know the peacemakers blessed are the poor in spirit I mean it was literally it was an upside down kingdom that he he was teaching, uh, and it was it was all about service to the poor. It was all about service to the the less fortunate. And I think you know many people growing up you know associate religion with power, and and you know you know we don't we don't like that. I think in so many ways through history it's been used for evil. Um, I don't think anybody would would doubt that. So. Uh, you know, I guess uh, a lot of the people that, that would be in my community now, you know, we would call ourselves followers of Jesus. We we would, um, I, I, you know, the stuff I believe might surprise people. I mean, I absolutely believe in prayer. Um, I've actually seen angels. Um, I mean, I have uh, I, I've seen unbelievable miracles in my life that that I absolutely believe 
you know, our, our direct answers to prayer. Um, I think interestingly though, I never started a, a faith-based organization and I've been very careful to keep, you know, Charity Water has always been, um, I guess what you would call a secular organization. You know, it has no religion and I wanted to create a much bigger tent. Uh, I, I didn't think that you should have to believe what I believe, or maybe, you know, go to church on Sundays to be a part of the organization that I wanted to build. And, you know, that's been so amazing over the years because Muslims are supporters of Charity Waters. And I remember early on, um, a Jewish synagogue wrote a long letter and said it was the first non-Jewish cause that they had ever supported. It, but the hundred percent and the values were so compelling. Oh, wow. And we have uh, huge support from the Mormons and the Church of Latter-day Saints. And, you know, probably the majority of our community would be atheist or agnostic. And, uh, you know, the, the beautiful thing about water, the beautiful thing about generosity is that everybody can agree on that. While the, you know, my personal faith has been the driver from me starting the organization and me continuing to show up for 10 years, um, it's not for the majority of the people that would give to Charity Water or even the majority of the people that, that work at Charity Water. And that's okay. You know, I don't, I don't need to impose any religious agenda uh, on the world. You know, in, in, in heaven, I don't believe anybody is walking eight hours for dirty water. I don't think anybody is hanging themselves in a tree because they, you know, they spilled their water. Uh, I guess I get to do work that aligns with my personal theology every single day. Um, and you know, I, I, every once in a while, like there'll be someone in my office that'll ask me to pray for him and I'll, I'll pray for him. Um, they're, they're typically people that don't even believe what I believe and, and it's a lot of fun. That's, that's cool. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think it'll be extremely valuable and just so cool that you were able to kind of talk us through that a little bit. Final quick questions. I know we need to hop, but what keeps you up at night? <laughs> so in some ways, uh, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're a social entrepreneur, uh, you know, running an organization, you know, so much of our, 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 our business thrives on donations. It thrives on money. Uh, and you know, with charity waters model for 10 years, hundred percent of the money that the public gives goes directly to projects, which we then prove. And we're able to give people clean water in a measurable way. I think I swing and I still swing 10 years later between these two, very extreme states. One, we have raised our last dollar and no one is ever going to give another dollar. And, you know, with all the problems in the world, you know, people are just going to stop caring and they're going to stop giving and we're not going to be able to help any more people. The, uh, so that does keep me up at night every once in a while. And that's an illogical fear on the other end of the spectrum. You know, I think we're going to raise a billion dollars this year <laughs> and help 10 times more people than, than we are. And, you know, so I go, uh, from, and I, and I land, I, I typically end there on the abundance mentality, Good. but there is that, there is that fear every once in a mm -hmm. while because, you know, people don't need to care about, you know, their, their neighbors, but they don't feel like their neighbors living 3000 miles away. Uh, you know, the, the people that I talk to have never walked for water in their life. They've never seen kids die of diarrhea. Mm -hmm. uh, they've, they've never been sick with parasites or worms or, you know, had to pull leeches out of their water. So it's so foreign to so many of the people that we're trying to engage in this cause that can help. Uh, you know, I guess I just, uh, I, I hope that the, the compassion and the empathy never really dries up because it, it, it feels sometimes like the world is so toxic and, you know, you hear about, I don't know, you know, you can turn on the TV and get really depressed.
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now it's, it's interesting. You swing between those two extremes and I'm glad that you tend to end up on the more abundant side. Last two questions. Uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? Well, how young? <laughs> let's say, actually, um, let's say before you went through the rebellious phase, but, but knowing what you know now. Yeah, that that's actually a really difficult question because <laughs> I, I think had I not experienced what I had in those ten years, um, you know, it would be a very different organization. Sure. You know, the second ten years, I don't know if I'd gone and started Charity Water at eighteen, whether it would look anything like it looks now. I think there is a there's actually some things that I learned over that decade of convincing people to buy you know five hundred dollar bottles of champagne Please. that I've been able to <laughs> to turn for good. Mm-hmm. Um, inviting people into a very different and more redemptive story. So uh, it's kind of an unfair question. Nobody likes this question, by the way. <laughs> Most people don't. Dude, stop drinking. Smoking <laughs> sucks. You know, you're going to give yourself lung cancer and don't do drugs. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> and um, and I probably would have ignored myself right. and gone on and stuff anyway. You know, and that's that's where I net out to when, when I kind of, if I were to write my younger self a letter, which I have, it starts off with, well, you're probably not going to listen to this anyway, because we're very stubborn, but, um, and final, very serious question, pirates or ninjas, who's tougher? (laughs) Definitely pirates. Thank you. You know what? You're team pirates. Very few people are. It's usually ninjas. So team pirates, team pirates, they're much more fun too, I think. And I would just say, I mean, hey, if, if anybody, you know, is completely new to Charity Water, um, you know, we've got hundreds of videos online and people can kind of, you know, learn more about uh, about the issue. And, you know, as we turn 10, you know, we are looking to do a lot more. You know, helping 6 million people is great, uh, but there are people out there right now that are that are suffering. We know how to help. And um, we're able to give one person clean water for $30. So it's, it's kind of amazing to think sometimes. And you've seen that for yourself. You know, Absolutely. you were in villages where $10,000 um, drilled a well and gave 300 people clean water. And, yeah. you know, you would have been there and seen the dancing and the euphoria. Yeah. And now, now that so many of our projects are, are nine years old, we've been able to go back to those villages and meet children that never had to drink dirty water. Oh, that's so you know, cool. The, see this cycle of poverty broken and, you know, the, the water that their parents were drinking that was making them sick, you know, is, is a thing of the past. So, um, I would invite everyone just to learn a little bit more about the issue. Uh, it's a really important issue. Um, it's only going to get more important um, in the years to come. And um, there are a lot of ways you can engage with Charity Water. Absolutely. And it's such a unique experience engaging with Charity Water because you get to see where your money goes directly. I remember after doing my birthday campaign and and being able to actually fund a, a well, I was able to see that then take shape happen the you know the construction behind it and then actually skip photos of it so it's it's pretty amazing to you know really understand where your money's going because 
that that makes it more tangible. So thank you for that. We've been we've been trying to do that for ten years. You know, forty two percent of Americans don't trust charities, and and that's so sad, and and you know for good reason in some cases. And um, we have really been working so hard to take people that might be disenchanted and say, hey, here's a new business model. You know, it's we're, we're focused on transparency. We're focused on learning from mistakes. Um, you know, you you can't use the excuse how much of your money goes to the projects because it's always a hundred percent and trying just to get people to take another. Yeah. And it's really hard too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you have the, well, I mean, that's, that's something we didn't talk about, but none of your operating costs are, um, taken into account for that hundred percent model. You have a completely separate economic model to fund your business operations, right? That's right. And that's a lot of flights. You know, there are 115 families that, that pay for the, the 75 staff and the overhead in the office at Charity Water. And, um, you know, they're amazing. But, you know, that's made it possible for over a million people to give in the most pure way. So um, we, we believe in the model. So inspiring. I cannot wait to read your book. And will we just need to wait for more information on that? Or do you have a, a time frame when that will be out? It's depressing, but they say that if I had started writing now, it's going to be out in two years. So uh, maybe I should, you know, take maybe bit. I should maybe I should speed it up, or <laughs> you know, take a take a page from you know Gary V or you know one of, one of our friends that seems to be able to do a book every couple months. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly, you can do it. You can just push them, push them, push them. Um, awesome. Thank you, Scott. I can't I I can't tell you how fun this was to talk to you, and I'm excited for uh, the next time we meet and to follow along and support you. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. So if not us, then who? And if not now, then when? Absolutely love that quote. And I hope you enjoyed hearing from Scott and learning more about his story. You can check out charitywater.org for more info on what they're up to there. And a congratulations to them for celebrating 10 years the amount of progress they've made so far is is incredible. I was just thinking about this moment when I was in Ethiopia, in Tigray, Ethiopia, Africa, with the Charity Water team. And when you arrive there, you hear about various rules. One of the rules was do not give anyone any money. Don't, you know, just purchase certain things from them that they're trying to sell out in the villages. So I arrive at one of these villages with the individuals I was traveling with, and this young boy, about eight years old, walks over to me. And he did know a little English, which was extremely impressive. And he said to me, give me some burr. And burr is the currency there. And I thought to myself, no way. I was told, do not do that. You can create just an uproar and havoc if you get money out. And then he kind of tells me to come over closer to where he was standing and nods over, come over here. And he said, give me some burr, 15 burr. And he shows me this phone that he wants to sell me, but it was a fake phone. It was a brick, a small little brick rock that had uh, Nokia written on it. In <laughs> It also had little seeds that were made of the buttons. And he said, 15 burr. And I thought, no way, I'm not supposed to do this, but I really wanted to purchase this good. It was the coolest thing. It was like this kind of antique Nokia phone. And given that I worked in technology, I thought it'd be a pretty cool item to bring back to America. So finally, I just kind of look at him and then he says, okay, okay, 15 burr. And he shows me another little seashell that he was going to add to sweeten the pot. 
Well, I get, I show him that I had 10 burr. And I said, I only have 10 burr. And he looks at me and he adds another seashell. He's trying to do this deal with me and negotiate. Well, finally, I said, okay. And I gave him 20 burr. I overpaid for the fake Nokia phone. And the look on his face was incredible. And it was just really cool to see this young boy uh, doing what he can to make some money. And actually, he had a product. And I was thinking I was going to teach him a little negotiating skill and overpay then as a reward because he was a great negotiator. And what he taught me was much more valuable. I guess it's just one of my favorite moments of, of realizing, you know, the opportunities where we are are really limitless regardless of where we are. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your why not now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to whynotnow at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now? Thank you.